told people that I can't preach about redemption, I can't preach about grace, I can't tell people that God is going to turn things around in your life and uh, do things for you and, and that He is faithful and that the best is yet to come. I can't preach that kind of stuff if in my own life when I uh, faced setbacks and hardships and difficult moments if I didn't have to trust God for the same thing. And, uh, you know, the, the, the story of what God has done for us uh, the beauty of what He has done for us is the beauty of what He does for all of us um, because it's His heart. It's the kindness and the goodness and the lovingness of, uh, or the loving, isn't lovingness a word? I don't know, but, uh, but it's how loving our Creator is, and it's just overwhelming when you know His heart. It's overwhelming when you, when you understand His goodness and His grace and, um, and just how committed he truly is. And the, and the thing is, is that when you're facing the hardship, when you're facing the challenge, when you're facing the moments that you don't understand, it's difficult to see that. It's difficult to see how God is busy figuring everything out. And that is why on this journey, what we need is faith. And it's not just faith as an abstract concept of, well, we, we kind of believe or we kind of trust. It's actually knowing the goodness of God. It's actually knowing who you are in God. It's knowing uh, what He has done for you on the cross. And it's about finding rest in this God who remains faithful in our lives no matter what happens. And, uh, and that's what takes us to a place of trust where we say, God, I don't understand what's going on right now. I'm facing difficult things. These, these moments don't make sense to me. There's things that I experience in life that don't make sense to me. But I'm trusting that you're good and I'm trusting that in the end you'll work all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And you either believe that or you don't. Either God is busy right now working all things together for your good or he's not at all. It's one or the other. And we truly believe and I uh, can testify today to you that God works all things together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so whatever you might have faced or are facing or are hoping for or are trusting for, I want to tell you that God is busy working and your story is not done yet. And so coming back uh, from honeymoon, we are just filled with faith for the future because we know that God has us here for a purpose. You see, one of the reasons why God works all things together for good is because He wants to work through the good that He has done in your life. He's busy doing something because He wants your life to be a testimony to others. He wants to set you up and give you a platform, and give you a place, and give you some experience, and give you some, some, some things that he has done, some expensive things that have, could only have come through the journey, because he wants to do something through your life. See, nothing that God does, he does solely for the purpose of doing it for us. He also wants to do it through us. He's always got this multifaceted purpose and glory that he is working in and through our lives, where he allows us not just to be people who receive, but people who are able to then give to others. And we'll mention that this morning, that, that we are, are blessed. We become blessed because it puts us in a position of strength to bless others, to speak into life into others, and to encourage others in this God who is so faithful. So we are here because we know that God has us here for a purpose, and each of you are here for the same reason. That's why we're so passionate about our Discover Your Destiny course, because we want you to discover that you're not just a spectator here at Anchor Church. We don't want a room full of spectators on a Sunday morning. We want people that have been activated in the journey that God has for them and to pursue that purpose that God has for your life. And one of the ways that you can do that is by discovering your design and taking those steps into being a part of something bigger than yourself. 
But how God starts us on this journey is by revealing His heart to us, by revealing His love to us. And, and there's this amazing thing that God does that when you begin to be a recipient of His love, when you begin to receive His love in your life, when you begin to experience His grace, it recreates the effect in you. It's the revolution to end all revolutions because every revolution that we have in the earthly sense is a reaction to some other form of oppression or, or something that people feel is, is, is out of alignment and so they react to that. But obviously, and, and, and often those reactions cause complications that cause other reactions and so you have people that revolt to revolutions and then revolutionize what was revolutionized before and if you go through history, it often just goes through circles and cycles of you know, one kind of uh, form of revolution after another. But the one revolution to end all other revolutions is the revolution of love. Because when you love somebody, it doesn't cause them to revolt and to stand against that or to try and bring order or balance to what you've done. It actually recreates the effect within that person. And the response for them is to love in return. And so the circle's complete. There's no more revolutions necessary because it, it recreates that effect. And, and, and when we come into contact with God, when we stand face to face with Him, when we experience His love, His love does more than make us feel good. It does more than, than, than make us feel warm on the inside and go, I'm so glad God loves me. It actually recreates you. It actually changes you fundamentally. It actually begins to change your makeup and your setup and your outlook and your worldview and everything about you. God recreates your heart. And he speaks many times in scriptures about how he, when he encounters your life, will take your heart of stone from you and will give you a new heart. In the book of Ezekiel, that's the promise. I will give you a new heart, a heart that you may know me, a heart that beats, a heart that is alive, a heart that that, that feels, that expresses, that desires. And God gives us all of those things. You might have heard it said before that, you know, if you trust in God, if you love God, He will give you the desires of your heart. But I believe that's more than in one dimension of giving you what you desire. In fact, He gives you your desires. All of a sudden, you begin to desire things that you would never have desired before because God is creating a heart in you that is like His heart. Like His heart. Becoming like Jesus, it's the beauty of what he, he does. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but when you really love someone or you really look up to someone or you spend a lot of time with someone, um, you start becoming like them. Your mannerisms even, you know, I, I, I saw um, when, uh, when Jake uh, preached here, Schwertfinger preached here a few weeks ago, I was like, this is like watching Phil Smethurst preach because Jake spends way too much time with Phil. And so all the mannerisms are the same. The way he moves his head is the same. The way he talks is the same. It's like you could just see these guys have hung out a lot. And, and you notice that when, when, when people uh, hang out a lot, then, then all of a sudden they become like each other. Will never used to watch golf late at night until he met me. Now he comes to my house and watches golf till two in the morning. Who does that? But it's because he's been hanging out with me for too long. And, um, and so you, you begin to take on the characteristics of the people that you hang out with. And especially when you're a parent, you realize how your kids mimic you. I was sitting in traffic the other day, and, and I sometimes get frustrated when, you know, the light goes green, and people just, like, they're on their phones, or they're not concentrating, and I'm like, you know, I often ask them rhetorical questions, like, what is the purpose of your life? 
you know, like, how can you be sitting here and waste so much time? Do you have nowhere to be and nothing to do of any value of significance that you can spend this amount of time in front of a red robot or a green one? Um, and, so, and so the other day I was sitting in traffic and, and, and Eli was sitting in the car and, no, and people weren't moving, we were trying to get to school. And, uh, and Eli basically, I think he said something along the lines of, what, what are you people doing? Don't you have anywhere to be? And I was like, oh my, he sounds exactly... He sounds exactly like me. Um, I also walked into his room the other day, and Eli was in the middle of doing 100 push-ups while reading his Bible, which is obviously what I do every day. <laughs> Why are you guys laughing? <laughs> so, you know, the Scriptures actually tell us that the more we behold Jesus, the more we look into what it is that he has done for us, the more we work out our salvation and, and, and look into the heart of God and discover the heart of God and, and read the word and spend time in prayer and spend, spend time uh, reminding ourselves of the gospel and the, and the finished work of the cross, essentially all of that, summing it up into beholding Jesus, which, is me, which means to gaze intently and steadfastly at someone. As we behold Jesus and we, and we become more intimately acquainted with the wonders of his person, it actually says that something miraculous happens when we do that. The scriptures tell us that as we behold him, we are transformed. We are transformed. At a fundamental level, we become different. The more we behold him, the more we become like him. It says this in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. I'm sharing a message with you this morning called Break My Heart for What Breaks Yours. Break My Heart for What Breaks Yours. And in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, it says, But we all, with unveiled face, that's an important bit there, that our, our faces are unveiled, and I'll mention that a little bit more in a moment, but with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Beholding. That's our primary job description as believers, is to behold. When the Scriptures talk about looking unto Jesus, it's more than just, okay, look at Him. It means look to Him for salvation. Like David says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? I'm looking for help. I'm looking for salvation. And as we look to Jesus, which is another way of saying as we put our faith in Him. And in this sense, as we behold Him, we trust Him, we see Him, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, all that He is and all that He has done, we are being transformed. As we behold, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as from the Lord the Spirit. Just as we look at Jesus, the Holy Spirit works in us to change us. And so one of the things that is a key uh, understanding of Scripture that we try to share here often at Anchor Church is that we are not asking you to try and change yourself. We're not trying to ask you to take up a system of behavior or modify your behavior or just change the way you think or change the way you live. All of those things might be a part of the process, but ultimately what we're asking you to do is instead of trying to change yourself, is to fix your eyes on Jesus, to behold Him. And what we hope to do here every Sunday morning is to just put up a really, really big image of Jesus. And say, so this is Jesus. And the more you know Him, the more you understand Him, the more you see Him, the more you'll be changed.
So stop trying to change yourself and fix your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on Him. Behold Him. Behold all that He has done. Because this is not just imitation. And a lot of people have this concept, and yes, we imitate, as Paul writes, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Yes, we, 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 we look at His life and how He lived, and we set a benchmark for what's right and wrong and where we should be putting our, our intentional thoughts and, 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 our, and our energy and our virtue and, and how we should be living our lives. We do get that from Scripture. But there's something bigger than that. And that is the fact that we're not just copying. We're not just working in our own strength, taking the rules and the principles and, the, and, and all the, the different religious statutes and trying to live them out because that makes us no different from every other religion on the earth. Just here's the principles, just try and follow them as best you can. That's not what this is. It's not just copying. It's not just imitation. It's transformation. It's becoming. Right believing, as Charles Spurgeon said, leads to right living. It's about getting the believing right first so that you can become and then you'll behave. The behaving comes later. That's not our focus at present. At present, our focus is the becoming. So that what you do is not just something that you've pasted onto your life like a self-help manifesto, but something that you're actually becoming. It's true to who you are in Christ. And so... We realize who we are in Jesus, and then we are transformed by that knowledge to become all that He has intended for us to be. And so this scripture here, where it talks about us being transformed, it's something so much more powerful than, 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 than just trying your best to do what God expects of you. This is, is our new covenant of grace. And in the new covenant of grace, um, it's greater than the old covenant of the law. It's greater than following uh, uh, God uh, by legalistic standards and rules. Under the law, the people couldn't stand before God. They couldn't stand because they were never in a place where they had sufficiently fulfilled the law in order to stand wholeheartedly and unashamedly before God. There was no access to God's presence. And only on very certain and specific occasions God would allow some of the patriarchs to stand before him or have that kind of interaction with him. And one of them is Moses. And this scripture, if you go back, and I don't have time to do it today, but if you go back into 2 Corinthians 3 um, and 2 Corinthians 2, you'll actually see that it's talking about Moses and how Moses had to go and stand before God. So he, God brings, using Moses, the people of Israel out of Egypt. They go into the wilderness. They camp at Mount Sinai. And God goes, uh, and Moses goes up to up Mount Sinai to go and stand and to meet with God face to face. And that's where he receives this revelation of who God is, which we read about in Exodus, which is so powerful. But also Moses receives the law from God, which was the standard of, of, of God's righteousness. And so he stands there, and Moses is communicating with God, and as he comes down from the mountain, it so impacts his life that his face is literally shining. His face is shining. And so he puts a veil, and that's where that veil comes in. He puts a veil over his face. And people say that 
the reason why that the, 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 the veil was over his face was so that it wouldn't blind people. You know, it was too bright because he had picked up this glory. But actually it tells us later on in the New Testament that the reason why he put the veil over his face is so that people could, wouldn't see that the, that, the, that the glory, that the shining was fading. So the, the glory of the law, the glory of standing before God under the law of Moses, there is some glory to it, but it's a fading glory. It's not a lasting glory. And so it says that even today when people read the law of Moses and Christians that still adhere to the law of Moses more than to the new covenant of grace, there's a veil that is over their faces because it's a fading glory. Have you ever experienced the fading glory? Have you ever tried to serve Jesus in your own strength and you feel like you've got to keep this emotional high of like super Christianity and you're like, this is my week. Have you ever like, it's like a diet. It's like Sunday night. Oh, this week I'm going to be a good Christian. Like this week I'm going to smash it. Where's my Bible? I've got to find it. I'll find it and then I'm going to smash this week. I'm going to pray every day and there's nothing wrong with you setting those kinds of of, of intentional practices. I believe it's really important for us. But the problem is, is that you might be on a high for a week and then you're like, I'm going to go to church and I'm going I'm to worship and I'm going to do what I need to do. And, and then, but when you hit that moment where it feels like the momentum just drops a little bit or it doesn't feel as amazing as it did the first time or it becomes actually a discipline that you actually have to, that you actually have to move yourself to partaking in, then you go, oh, God has left me. And where you had confidence in your good weeks, you have no confidence in your bad weeks. And it becomes a roller coaster ride of Christianity. It's the fading glory. You know why? As long as you are basing the glory of God in your life on what you're doing for Jesus, it will be a fading glory. Under the law, the glory fades. But the covenant of grace that we are in says that what we base the glory on and we, what produces the glory in our lives is not what we do for Jesus, but what Jesus has done for us. Because that doesn't fade. Your commitment might wax and wane, but the commitment of Jesus to you never fails. And so don't focus on how much you love Jesus. Begin by focusing on how much Jesus loves you and you will experience a glory that does not fade a power in your life that does not fade. And that is what it is telling here, us here in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, that, that what we now have, as we behold Him, with what? An unveiled face. We see what Jesus has done for us. We stand in His presence. And we have no shame because there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We understand that we are completely blood-bought, redeemed, and made the righteousness of God by our faith in Christ Jesus. It is our new identity. It is who we are, and nothing's going to change it. And so now, in the Old Testament, people were too scared to approach even Mount Sinai, to stand before God, and even if they did, the glory would fade. But now, we, with unveiled face, behold Him in all of His glory. No more fear, no more condemnation. And so in all of history, with all the people that pursued God and through all the nation of Israel and through all of the, the prophets of old and all of those things, no people, no group of people 
have ever been in as strong a position and as privileged a position as what we are to be transformed. They were trying real hard, striving and struggling to be what God needed them to be. We have access to the throne. We go before Him, the throne of grace, boldly approaching, and we stand and we go, here we are, God. We can worship You. We can communicate with You. We can fellowship with You. We can, we can uh, uh, have this sense of intimacy with Jesus, this, this knowing and this understanding and this growing, and we can do it every single day. And as we do it, as we behold Him, as we put our faith in Him, we're transformed. It's never been easier for us or for people to be changed. And so I, I'm hoping to encourage some people that have been struggling for a long time and have thought to themselves, I'll never change. I'll never get over this sin. I'll never get past this obstacle. I'll never be able to change my thinking. I'll never be able to change my relationships. I'll never be able to do better in this area. Here's the good news. You don't have to do it. You just need to look to Jesus, and he'll work in you. He'll transform you from the inside out. And that's what we have. We get to, to be this, this, these people so freely and generously molded into the image of God. And so my first encouragement to you today is to behold him with faith, with love, with an open heart and an open mind. Are you looking daily into the face of Jesus? Do you understand what he has accomplished for you? Do you know who you are in Christ as a result? If you do, it is impossible for you to stay the same. And what's going to happen? Our hearts are going to be recreated into his image. We're going to take on his desires, his passions, his, his perspective. We're going to be changed. One sure way to know when you're experiencing that transformation is a transformation of desire. Because our desires, as ad hoc as they might seem and as attached to us as they might seem from the outside and as many desires have been created in us by media and marketing and the world that we live in, the truth is, is that our desires are actually attached to our identity, to what we believe about ourselves. And so when you walk in the mall, have you ever done this? You had no desire, and then you walk in the mall and you develop some desires? It's because those marketing companies have spent millions of rands helping you think that you need this in order to be accepted or loved or whatever. They're speaking to identity all of the time. And so when we experience a transformation in our desires, we know that God is busy working. And it's not that we desire less, it's that we desire so much more. Except that the things that you desire have less and less to do about you or, or with you and more and more to do with helping others, with serving others, with being a part of what God wants to do, about bringing glory to Him. And this is what happens when we, when we worship Jesus. And this is what happens when we surrender to his love. So it does, as a pastor, frustrate me sometimes when people claim to love Jesus and to walk with Jesus and to behold Jesus and yet hold on to their own desires that are contrary to God's word saying, uh, you know, yes, I serve Jesus, but I'm going to do what I want. 
it means you don't trust Him. It means you're not beholding Him. It means you're not allowing Him to set the course. And you won't be transformed. You'll be caught in the trappings of everything that your desires will create for you. It means that you haven't found your full fulfillment in who Jesus is just yet, and you're still trying to fulfill yourself. And so that is a, a frustration for me because it ends up creating just a greater void in people's lives. It doesn't help you. It just hurts you. But when you experience His love, your desires, you begin to trust and, and your desires are changed and, and you can no longer be apathetic about God's passion. His passion becomes your passion. His desires becomes your desire. His, his vision becomes our purpose. And that which breaks his heart also breaks ours. There's this amazing moment that happens here where, where Moses is on the mountain and, and God loves his people. He's just delivered them from, from Egypt and they're standing at the bottom of the mountain, the base of the mountain, and they create for themselves um, a, an idol. And they begin worshiping this idol. And it, it angers God and it breaks his heart. And Moses speaks to God on behalf of the people of Israel, and he says, hey, God, just relent from your anger. Just, just let me go down there and speak to them. Like, it'll be okay. I'll go talk to them. And Moses moves down, and as he moves down, he looks upon the people worshiping this golden calf that they had created. They're literally standing next to a mountain that is being shaken by the glory of God, and, and in the presence of that, they create a man-made idol. And Moses takes the the Ten Commandments, and he just smashes them down on the ground. And he goes down there, and you can read the rest of the story, but he lays the smack down on Israel that day. Because what was in God's heart, the passion of God, the desire of God, his jealousy for his people, became Moses' passion. He didn't even realize it. He's like, no, 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 God, it's kind of fine. I'll go talk to him. He goes down there, and... And it's almost like God had to tell Moses, okay, Moses, just calm down. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. But that's what happens when you stand face to face with God. His passions become yours, and the things that breaks his heart breaks yours. So I've often said this, haven't said it in a long time, but I remember preaching this a lot when I was younger, that the love of God is free, but experiencing it will cost you everything. It's free. The love of God is free for you, but once you've experienced it, it just changes everything about your life. It'll cost you everything. You'll give everything up in pursuit of, of God's heart. So what is it that breaks God's heart? What would bring Jesus, living on this earth, to tears, where he would literally weep? Just think about that thought, how powerful it is. The creator of heaven and earth, who created people, who created emotion, who created intelligence, who created all that we experience that he himself would be moved to tears. We see two main places in Scripture where Jesus is moved to literal weeping, where it says oftentimes that, that he was deeply moved and greatly troubled. There's two places in Scripture, and this has always stood out for me as, as, as an understanding of the heart of God. Before you can have God's heart, you must know God's heart. And the first place is in Luke 19, verse 41 to verse 44. And it says, And when he drew near, this is Jesus, and saw the city, talking about Jerusalem, he wept over it. 
when he drew near to Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, people that are deceived. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you. This is the destruction that takes place in people's lives when they reject, when they become blind to the truth. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not, you did not know you, the time of your visitation. You did not recognize the time that Jesus offered himself to you. So what's the first thing that breaks the heart of God? It's the loss. It's when people don't know him. It's when people don't understand his goodness, when they don't know his grace. When Jesus has come doing all that is required for us to be completely redeemed, completely saved, completely made righteous before God, with eternal life being our inheritance, and instead they reject it because they've been blinded and veiled to the truth. The lost breaks God's heart. Jesus said, I have come to seek and save that which was lost. He tells the story about a woman who lost a coin who would put everything else aside and sweep everything aside until she found that one coin. Tells the story about the shepherd who had 100 sheep and one went missing and he would leave the 99 behind to climb through the hills to find that one sheep. This is Jesus telling us what the heart of God is like. He cares about the lost. The question today is, do we care about the lost? Or do we just care about our own comfort? Do we just care about how great my life is? You know, how, how everything's working out for me? How I want the next thing because we're never quite satisfied. Even when we get the thing we wanted, we just develop new wants. I'll go to church on a Sunday, I'll do my part, I'll listen to the message, but then I'm going to go and live my life. The prayer today is, God, break our hearts for what breaks yours. Do we care about the lost like God does? Do we choose relationship over religion and salvation over self-justification? Do we choose mission over self-fulfillment? And how this message came about is that um, Lee and I were having a conversation uh, on, on honeymoon. We traveled to the island of Bali, and um, there's some amazing islands out there in Southeast Asia. Many of you may have been there. Um, and it's just a beautiful place from jungles to mountains. There's an active volcano, um, you know, the black beaches that are, you know, black because of the, the volcanic sand and the ash and everything that's around there. And, and, um, and, and it's just... a, a you know, magnificent place, beautiful place. But all along, it's like we couldn't shake this burden for the people that live there. And even though many, many missions have gone to many of those islands, um, the people have, have not, there's been no great revival on the island of Bali. There, there's, there's no great move of God where people, and you know, we live here in Joburg, and South Africa has many churches and been Christianized and in many ways. Sometimes it's just nominal Christianity and people need revival from nominal Christianity. Sometimes more than what islands that haven't heard the gospel. 
but, but there's no great move of God there. There's no powerful church. The first thing I thought, I, you know, I got so passionate about it, I even messaged Phil Smith this, and I'm like, hey, man, there's nothing happening in Bali. What are you guys doing? Like, what is Overland Missions doing in Bali? Because we need a church here. I mean, we, should we just open up Anchor Bali? And Phil has the same heart. They're preparing a yacht at the moment that in about two years they'll be able to go from island to island. They're going to set up a base in an island close there and work back through many of those. And these guys, this is the heart that they have. And we just, we, we felt it. As you go through the streets of Bali, and I've got a little video of a scooter that we hired. As you go through the streets of Bali, uh, you'll see that every single one of those homes has a little shrine and a little place where they offer sacrifices to the gods and there are sacrifices everywhere. Within their, their Bali Hinduism that they practice, um, many different kind of variations of it and adaptations of it, every single thing requires a sacrifice. I mean, we went snorkeling at one point, and there was an idol underwater by the edge of the reef. There was just like every kind of god, millions of gods in that faith system that need to be appeased. There's a, there's a belief in karma and every, there's constant sacrifices. So people make little sacrifices every day and can put it outside of, of their homes. There's little temples and little shrines in every corner of every place that you go to. You literally can't go to a hotel or a bathroom or a market or a thing without finding a little shrine. And uh, we actually walked past one and there was a little sacrifice and uh, like a, a really big rat came down and took some of the stuff and like ran off and we were like, is that considered the, the God or is that like, you know, is that sacred or should we be getting pest control in here? Like, um, you know, how is it accepted? And, and, and our hearts were burdened for people. And I'm using that, not that, uh, you know, there are people in Joburg that, that need the light of the gospel as much as the people in Bali. Let me tell you, that's why we're here. But our heart was burdened for people that don't know the complete and finished work of God's grace. That the sacrifice was made. That it was offered. That it's complete. And that you don't need to make more in order to earn good karma from your God. Even our little scooter that we rented on the one day had a sacrifice in the scooter, they, in the little pocket where you can put stuff. They had put one in there to protect you while you... And let me tell you, that's not going to work because it is dangerous driving around there. Dogs and chickens and cr there's no traffic rules. I'm amazed we came out of it alive. But the point is we were burdened by people who don't know the goodness. And it's so much more overt out there. So we had a conversation with our taxi driver, our driver, we used him for the, for the whole trip and... Uh, spoke to him about karma, and I just asked him the question. I said, so when something bad happens in your life, or when you see something bad happening to somebody else, do you believe they deserved it? Like it's, and his answer straight up, yep. There's so little compassion, because if something bad happens to you, yeah, you deserve it. And it really bugged me that some Christians take up that thinking as well. Oh, something bad happened to you, yeah, it must be because you didn't pray enough. You weren't spiritual enough. You didn't honor God enough. That's what happens. How many of you have said that when something bad happens to a Christian? That's what happens when you don't honor God. We're not Hindu. And I spent about 30 to 40 minutes on our one taxi ride telling the driver about the difference between grace and karma. I'm just so grateful that we're under grace. Because it means that we don't need to make sacrifices. We can make we live as sacrifices 
because we've been changed, but we don't need to appease our gods or, or beg for his good fortune. We have it. It's ours. And God, the one who created this world, wants us, the people he created, to know that. And it breaks his heart when people don't know it, when people haven't experienced it. And so, when you've stared into the eyes of Jesus and experienced his love and grace, you cannot imagine that there are people out there living today, struggling and striving and searching without having heard of the incredible redemption that is available to them as the free gift of God. It should break our hearts, church. It should break our hearts. I mean, we've, we, we printed invitation cards a while back that says you're invited that we thought would just make like an easy way to invite people to church. Hey, like this is, this is where we go to church. You can come and hang out with us. You know, we shouldn't have any left. We did print a few thousand, but we shouldn't have any left. Because if our hearts are broken for what breaks God's, we should be handing those out left, right, and center. And if you don't have a card, you don't need one, you can just invite people, you can speak to people. We want Sundays to be a place where people can be introduced to the love of God. But we should be reaching out to people because it's what God came to do. It's what he did through his son. And Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so now I am sending you. We've been sent on a mission in this city. And we should give ourselves to that. The second place we see is, includes John 11.35. I'm going to read from verse 32, which is the shortest verse um, in, in all of Scripture, uh, John 11.35. But from 32, it says, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. So some context here. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus is a family that Jesus is very close to. They live in Bethany, about 60 kilometers, I believe, from Jerusalem itself. Um, and, uh, or maybe less than that. And, uh, and, and so whenever Jesus went into Jerusalem, he didn't stay often in Jerusalem. He didn't stay in the actual city, but he went out to Bethany and stayed with his friends. And, um, and so he loves this family. He's done miracles in their lives. And uh, at one point, Lazarus, their brother, um, who loves Jesus and who knows that Jesus loves him, he gets sick. And so they send for Jesus, but Jesus delays in showing up. And so four days later, um, he has already been dead for four days. And now Jesus shows up. And here's the thing about this verse is that we know the story of Lazarus. Jesus is going to raise him from the dead. He specifically waited four days because the Jews believed that the spirit departs from the body within a three-day period. And so he waits four days so that everybody can know that Lazarus is really dead. And then he shows up. You see, sometimes God shows up in your life just a little bit late, according to what you think, so that he can show you his glory. And that's what Jesus says. He says in that verse, and I won't go through all of it now, but he says, but didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see my glory? And so he shows up. So he knows he's about to rock this funeral. Jesus is about to flip this thing upside down. I mean, if it was me, I would be like, stand back, people, let me show you something. This is going to be the best funeral you have ever attended. But Jesus approaches, and as he approaches, it says, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, 
he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Deeply moved and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. See, he knows he's about to turn it all around. God knows he's about to turn it all around in your life. But that doesn't make him apathetic to what you're feeling. It doesn't mean that he goes, oh, just get over it. It's going to be fine. I've told you a hundred times. He still hurts when you hurt. He still weeps when you weep. He still mourns when you mourn. And your emotions and what you go through in your journey, it matters to God. It matters to Him. If you're hurting, He cares. He does care. Jesus knew He was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, but when He sees these people in pain, He is deeply moved and greatly troubled. How far is this from the cold-hearted, distant, legalistic God that so many have portrayed Him to be? What we have is a weeping Savior, a wounded healer, someone who gives Himself a compassionate high priest. We have a loving God, and He cares about your life. He weeps at your sorrow, and His heart breaks for your hurting, and the Scriptures tell us again and again and again that He is close to the broken heart. And that Jesus was sent, it tells us in Isaiah 1, to bind up the wounds of the, of the broken heart. And so if your heart feels a little broken today, you can be sure of the fact that God is close to you, that He cares about you. In Exodus 3, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord said, this is going back to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. Who are in Egypt. I have seen. And have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That's what God did for us when we were in Egypt, when we were slaves to sin, when we were slaves to brokenness, when we were slaves to to, to this world. He says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cries because of their taskmasters, and I have come down to deliver them. How good is it that we have the Savior that has come down to deliver us? I can tell you from firsthand experience that if you are afflicted and if you are brokenhearted and you call out to God, He will hear you and He will answer you. He will. You might not experience it in the moment. You might not think, oh, this is exactly how it's going to work. You might not see how he is going to do it. But his heart breaks for the hurting. And so if you're walking with Jesus, and if we're walking with Jesus, we should have that same concern for others, for those that hurt, for those that mourn. Our desire should be like God's desire to comfort and to strengthen and to encourage. And let me tell you, there's no other way that we will be able to see a city changed. As long as we're standing up on a hill judging people, we're not going to be changing them. We're going to be like every other religion and every other system out there. But when we are willing, like Jesus, to step into people's mess, 
to step into their brokenness, to, to give them a home even when others reject them and say, you're welcome here. When we have the same heart for the hurting that God has for the hurting, we'll, we'll, we'll shape a nation. We'll change the city. When we start putting our comfort aside and start serving people with the heart of God, we'll change the city. And so, coming back from just this experience of an island that really is essentially untouched by the gospel, I realized how many people live by us every day that are in the same position. And my prayer for, for myself, for Lee and I, for our leadership and for our church is God, break our hearts again for what breaks yours. Recreate, remold, reshape our lives into the kind of people that will give whatever it takes to see the heart of God expressed in our city. That's why we're here. And as we do that, let me tell you, there is a fulfillment, there is a joy, there is a, there is a, a powerful knowledge that comes into our lives as we know that we are a part of God's story here on this earth, that we are His body fulfilling His mandate in this generation. And we all, no matter who you are, we all get to be a part of that. So our prayer today is, God, break our hearts for what breaks yours. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and pray together.